Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Are We There Yet? edition. It is September 4th, 2014, and my name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm an editorial writer with the Journal, and this week I am keen to talk with my colleague, city columnist Paula Simons, provincial affairs columnist Graham Thompson, and politics reporter Karen Cleese for what I think we can safely say will be the all-progressive conservative leadership race edition. That's the subhead. So hello, Karen, Paula, Graham. Hello, Sarah. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Before we start talking about what's happened in the days leading up to this Saturday's first vote in the PC leadership race, I'd like to make one podcast-related announcement. We will be recording a special episode of the show Sunday morning so we can talk about the results of Saturday's vote, whatever they might be, and what's going to come next. We could have a new premier by then, or we might be heading into the second round of voting. But whatever the outcome, you can count on a bonus press gallery Sunday afternoon. But today... We are in the waning days of the Progressive Conservative Party's leadership race. It's been a four-month campaign, which to me at the outset, I remember thinking, that seems like a really long time. I would love to hear from from you guys overall about how you think this race has has played out compared to how you initially thought it might go. Graham, like, did you have a script in your mind and did did they rewrite it on you in in ways you didn't expect? It's been nastier than I thought it would be, a lot nastier, just based on previous campaigns. I've I guess I've covered everything, including uh, Ralph Kleinman. He was um, he won leadership a lot last year, especially in the dying days. We saw the leaks about the Lukasik uh, expenses, uh, the um, the radio ad put out today by um, Rick McIver. It's been a lot lot more under the radar as well for the first three months. No one's paying attention. I knew that would be the case, but boy, nobody is paying attention to it. And that may mean very, very uh, low turnout on Saturday on that first vote, uh, which may be a real embarrassment for the for the PCs. Mm. Paula, how about you? How did it play out compared to how you thought it might? I was actually shocked at the virtual absence of actual policy discussion because you know, you'll think back, and it's not very long ago, to the leadership race that Ed Stelmack won. And there was a lot of discussion about everything from royalty rates to tax regimes. When Marr squared off against Redford, there were also important policy questions that were debated. And this time around, it's been, as Graham says, backstabby, you know, it's been sort of seventh grade girl whisper campaigns. It's been a very ugly campaign. It's been a campaign without a lot of substance. And I've I guess, really been surprised, not just that there's animosity amongst the camps, but the degree of party, I don't know, disunity, the party fracturing. I think we're seeing a shift toward really American style politics in Alberta. I mean, we're seeing uh, this campaign has been completely superficial, vacuous. I think the the mayor of Calgary called the the campaigns insipid in terms of their policy for for cities. Um, You know, We've sat down with all of the candidates and editorial boards here at the Edmonton Journal, and uh, Jim Prentice avoided any kind of controversy because he's the front runner, and front runners are notorious for avoiding any kind of, you know, bold policy statements. Um, Rick McIver was here last weekend, and you couldn't get him to nail down uh, a single. When I asked him what his most important policy that distinguished him from all of the other candidates, he said that it was that he didn't want to put the health board back in place. I mean, if that's the the level of discussion that we're talking about in Alberta politics, it's it really makes me wonder what kind of government we're going to get. I tried to put together a platform tracker for the different candidates, and it was virtually impossible because they don't have policies. It's it's remarkable. And this time around as well, the, the party itself seemed to be aiming for a very low-key race. I, um, the so-called debates they had 
uh, were all usually behind closed doors, run by the party or uh, lobby groups that were friendly with the PCs. In previous races, we've seen the media get involved in these things, and this time around, the media actually was going to have a province-wide televised debate, but the party said no and Prentice said no. This has been very much geared to a status quo, let's get Prentice elected as leader with ASAP and with no fuss. And that campaign has actually, to me, played into the hands of of Prentice to be relatively low-key. Was there any of this that was smart strategy on the party's part? Like, you you characterize it as that way. Could you argue that they were just trying to get back down to the grassroots of the party? We talked about from the beginning, this is not a contest for all Albertans to decide. This is for party members only. So would it make sense to just keep it all in-house like that, not have the televised debates? In previous races, they've tried to engage Albertans to try and get people back into the party as a fundraising tool as well. This time around, they've really seemed to try and keep the public at arm's length from this race. Um, They're not trying to um, sell the party. They're trying to just get this race over with, get Prentice installed, and then move on and try and change the channel that way. But it's an interesting question, Sarah, because in the last two conservative leadership races, there was general excitement in the general population, and people felt as though they were making a change. You know, uh, people who were tired of Ralph Klein thought this was their chance to renew the party. People who were tired of Ed Stelmack thought this was their chance to renew the party. And I don't get any sense of that this time. And I'm not sure that that's a Conservative Party strategy, as it is a fact that people have become disengaged from the party itself. And that cannot be a good sign. In previous leadership races, you got the sense that this was choosing the premier who would be the premier for the long haul. In this case, I think everybody feels like this is going to be a premier who is then going to have to face a really tough election in you know less than two years. And then we'll see. Well, and I think that's the key, Paula, is that if they had all of these debates, if they were out in the public talking to the public, they'd just be getting hammered left, right and center. I mean, I went to one all candidates debate that was actually a debate where they actually argued with each other. And that audience was not friendly. Um, the, the reactions from the crowd just spoke to anger. I mean, they were just angry. And, and, and I don't think they wanted to face any of those questions. I think Graham's right. I think they want to get Prentice installed. And then I think they're going to start taking on the big questions. But I think it's also a question. I mean, people like to back a winner. People wanted to be part of the people, people of all different political backgrounds wanted to be part of the discourse last time. People who had never bought a Tory membership ran out and got a Tory membership. And there was lots of excitement. Now there's no excitement. And I don't think that bodes very well because people don't feel like they're choosing the winner. They don't feel like they're choosing Alberta's next premier. I think there's a lot of feeling like this is a step that takes us to the next election. A few people have mentioned the, you know, American style campaign and, and what's been happening in the last couple of days. But can we talk very specifically about this ad that Rick McIver released today? It's this radio ad that's been playing in Calgary. Why would he be doing this? Let, let me just play a quick clip of that for for our listeners. Do we really want another premier with ethical issues? Jim Prentice has admitted to giving away free memberships to the PC party. So that was a clip from Rick McIver's uh, ad. Why would he be doing this? This seems so un-leadership-like. Why would you be doing this to somebody who could potentially be someone you have to work with in a few days? Yeah, it is interesting. It does sort of speak to a desperation on McIver's part, I think, heading into the final vote. It's a very nasty um, ad and this 
we're not used to this actually happening inside the Tory party. It, as Karen says, it's very American. I mean, this is the kind of thing that goes on, you know, when the, when they're fighting for the Republican nomination, but not usually for this. And and he mentions the the word ethics. Mm-hmm. He's saying that you know Prentice you know, has no ethics because he's giving away memberships as opposed to selling them. Yeah, this is a, a nasty attack from one member of the PC party against another. This is going to hurt McIver if we, as we assume, that Prentice is going to actually win this leadership race. You really can't see Prentice inviting McIver into his cabinet. Maybe he will. But this certainly um, would be a problem for McIver. The last, the day before, two days before the, the final vote, he slams Prentice publicly, calls him unethical, basically. This, to me, does speak to McIver, seems to be desperate. Burning bridges right now in a desperate attempt to try and get something, some sort of spark maybe for his campaign. Hmm. Do you think it's fair? Do you think it's a fair ad? You listen to it, Paula. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, when Mr. Prentice was here to meet with the editorial board, he boasted about giving away the free memberships. I think we could say he wasn't in the tiniest bit abashed by it. In fact, he painted him as himself as the more ethical candidate for being upfront about giving out memberships and inviting more people into the party. Now, you know, personally, I thought that was a tad disingenuous given that his camp vehemently denied that he was giving away memberships at the outset. I don't know that it is fair to say that Prentice has been unethical. I think it's certainly fair to say that he's going to be more of the insider establishment candidate, which is what the ad goes on to say. Although then that's disingenuous too, because to say that Prentice is the insider when it's McIver who was in cabinet, uh, you know, begs a lot of questions about who's inside of whom and where. Oh, oh, <laughs> also, this week, I just don't. I don't even wear. <laughs> I'm just gonna move along. <laughs> also, it, it does show that quickly. Just to Graham follow up does not what, want to move along. And what Paula <laughs> talked about, and that is. Um, we, we are hearing from both McIver's camp and Lukasik's camp that this, this notion of giving away memberships is hurting Prentice. The public is not happy. PC members are not happy with this idea of him giving it away. So this is um, McIver targeting what he sees uh, quite rightly as Prentice's Achilles heel heading into the final vote, or the first vote, rather. Also this week... This is where I was going to go next. There was more Thomas Lukasik news. There was another leak. Karen, can you tell us about that story just briefly and and what impact, if any, it's had on his campaign? Well, briefly, there was another leak. This one to CBC News in Edmonton, indicating that Thomas Lukasik had taken three flights with his daughter dating back to 2007. He repaid the $1,400 cost of those flights to the government quietly, uh, after the Auditor General's report was released. I think what's interesting about the story is that it was it was cast as um, Thomas Lukasik had criticized Redford for taking all of these personal flights with his with her daughter. Uh, and now we find out that, that Thomas Lukasik also took flights with his daughter. What's interesting about it is that um, there was no policy. So neither of them technically breached any rules. There were no rules. In fact, the, the only rule, they basically had an honor system in place. And so Lukasik tried to spin it that way. Obviously, Redford's people tried to spin it that way as well. And it just doesn't wash with the public. And the message ends up, ends up being, why do you get to take your daughter on a plane to work when I don't get to and take her? And we should add that these were the government fleets, just for anyone who yes, might just have, sorry. Have, have dropped in on this, the, the provincially owned aircraft. Right. But, you know, I just don't think it's a fair comparison. What Redford was accused of doing was taking her daughter on pleasure trips, on vacation trips, and of... And of, and falsi- of flying her alone. And, and, of, and of falsifying the manifest to to 
allow her to have private time with her daughter on the plane. What Lukasik has acknowledged that he did was that on three occasions when he was working and couldn't get childcare when he was a single father primarily, he took his daughter Scarlett with him on on you know on a flight to Grimshaw where he went for government business on a flight to southern Alberta where he had to do something at a school and she spent time in the library. So, you know, I think what I saw in our commenters uh, re- reactions to this was that you know that this is this is not the same thing as what Redford was doing. But you know that, that, it, that there may be a question about why uh, you know he couldn't get other child care for his daughter, but that these trips were not taken to save him money or to give his daughter some kind of special treat or some kind of special privilege. Well, what it does, what the controversy does speak to, is the power that the the use of these airplanes has over the public. I mean, people really don't like the way that politicians use these planes, and and whenever you find, you know, then subsequently heard about Doug Horner bringing his wife on these planes. I mean, you need to keep in mind these planes have been around for decades, and every politician's partner has flown on these planes once or twice. I'm sure of it. And, and lots of other people besides. I mean, lots of people in the Tory establishment, lots of people in those inner circles have flown on those planes. Um, unfortunately, the government only releases them in PDF format. So there's no analysis possible on any grander scale. So I want to know overall, let's look big picture here as it, with our big, big wrap up, because this could be there could only be one vote it could go to a second vote. But which of these three men do you think ran the best campaign? <laughs> no, no, I'll Very jump quiet, at once, please. Oh, okay. I think nobody, <laughs> yes, we are all looking. At nobody <laughs> ran a really good campaign. I think that this campaign was designed to be low key by the party. That um, there was no really exceptional uh, campaigns. Another thing is these leadership campaigns are designed to run under the radar. These this is about not about engaging the public as much as it is about selling memberships. And uh, I think Prentice says he has made seven hundred and fifty speeches. Uh, most of them are to very small groups in small halls or in people's basements or backyards, basically, to try and sell memberships and try and convince people to come out and vote for him. Um, so it's, it's a pretty low-key campaign, so it's hard to gauge them that way. Um, I was thinking about the, the high points and the low points. I don't really recall any high points to this race at all. Low points um, would be Prentice giving away memberships, um, him mentioning that term limit idea, which didn't flow over, go over very well, at least with... Um, I did not care for it. Uh, with people who were thinking about but, you it. You know, it was also illegal. So um, also, you had the, the, the Lukasik leaks against Thomas Lukasik. You had McIver doing that uh, March, March for, for Jesus. Jesus um, March the, for hate. And March I, for so anti-gays. The, the points I'm thinking about in this campaign are all low points for these candidates. There's no high point that I can think of. I mean, I think you would have to say if Prentice wins either this weekend or on the second ballot, then arguably he ran the best campaign because it's the one that won. I actually think for all that we've beat up on Thomas Lukasik, he might actually have run the best campaign, but this is not setting the bar very high. I mean, I think he's actually done a good job of engaging people outside of church basements. He's been at every ethno-cultural community function this summer. He's been selling a lot of memberships. You know, I, I think it will in the end be to no avail but I think he may have been the candidate who damaged himself least with the way he ran his campaign. Let's put it that way. So you think he ran a good underdog campaign? I think he, I think he did run a good. I think he ran a respectable underdog campaign. And I think the high point was when instead of giving away free memberships, he started giving away free Thomas Lukasik combs. That was pretty good. The poll results in today's paper 
uh, let's put in the usual caveat about polls. Polls are take them or leave them. People don't like them. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. What can you tell us about what the numbers reveal right now about this leadership race in Alberta, Karen? Well, let me start by saying that I also covered the 2012 provincial election. And so I have really uh, a lot of difficulty with poll stories. But we did commission a poll, the Edmonton Journal and the Calgary Herald. And it is pretty interesting. Uh, It shows that the Tories have actually, despite all of the scandal this summer, they have increased their support, uh, which bowled me right over. Um, They've gone from 26% in the polls to 29% in the polls. Uh, The Wild Rose, meanwhile, has gone from 31% percent in the polls to 33 so both of the leading parties both of the right-wing parties have gone up in polls the the NDP and the liberals have sunk a little bit but all in all not much movement but still moving in a positive direction why we don't really know why Um, a couple of the experts I talked to yesterday say they've bottomed out they just won't go any lower the people who are going to vote Tory now are diehard supporters and they're going to keep voting Tory come hell or high water the other interesting thing about the poll is that none of the Tory leadership contenders are set to beat Daniel Smith's Wild Rose Party in the next provincial election so whether uh, Jim Prentice wins on Saturday night whether Luke Hasek wins or Rick McIver wins none of them will beat her in a general election now that stayed the same and that's really interesting as well the Tories are still down in the polls uh and and I mean that's that was a really interesting poll but mm-hmm. that's the, those are the two major findings and so and, and that supposes the election was like held tomorrow that there's right. no water under the bridge between now and then okay well do you guys think we're going to be talking about this leadership race again next week or do you think we're going to be talking about a government in transition transitioning its team okay I'll, I'll go first Again, it's very very quiet. He's the legislature calling. Yeah, there we go. I'm thinking it's going to be a first ballot victory for Prentice. Now, I've been wrong every time. Just so you know, I said it's it's going to be Nancy Bitkowski, Jim Dinning, and I thought Gary Marr, but I did give some uh, credence to Redford winning. But the thing is, the front runner is number one. The difference this time around is only three people in the race. Before, before we had half a dozen, eight, nine people in the race splitting that vote up. This time around, there's only three of them. A few months ago, I thought for sure it was Prentice, first ballot, he'll have a cakewalk. I'm not so sure it'll be that easy for him. I'm still thinking that he and his campaign are organized enough that they will manage to get 50% plus one or two on Saturday. It'll be a first ballot victory. I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. But this time around, I'm pretty sure it'll be Prentice first time out. Okay. What I will say, and I will hedge too, is that if Prentice doesn't win outright, I think the second ballot is a foregone conclusion. What's happened the last two times is when the front runner didn't win outright, other people's support went to a candidate who came up the middle. I don't think that will happen this time because the kinds of people who've gone out and bought Thomas Lee Kazakh memberships are not likely to vote for Rick McIver. And the kinds of people who've bought Rick McIver memberships are not likely to vote for Thomas Lee Kazakh. One is at the left of the party and one is at the right of the party. And, you know, one is from Edmonton and one is from Calgary. So I think if Prentice doesn't win a clear first ballot victory this weekend, I think he wins on the second ballot without question. Uh, Just to throw in one more thing, Paul, you're right. Also, they've changed the rules around... The previous election, uh, if nobody won the first ballot, there was a top three went to the second ballot. There's a preferential balloting system. This time around, the top two go to the second ballot. It's a runoff. There's no preferential ballot that tended to skew things and knock out the the front runner. 
Do memberships start being sold again in between as well? Yeah, they start being sold again next week. Oh, okay. See, what's interesting politically is more what happens regardless of what happens on Saturday night. So let's say Prentice wins, and let's say he wins by a couple hundred votes or maybe a couple thousand. Do the other leadership contenders accept that win? Because there is so much controversy about the about the Tory party's new electronic voting system. And it'll be really interesting to see whether, you know, if they, I mean, Thomas Lukasik, also known as Landslide Lukasik, has lots of experience fighting election victories slash losses. And, you know, will he accept a, a win of, of 2,000 votes for Prentice in a, in a race that's widely expected to get, what, 15,000 people out, maybe? Well, that's a step of watching three different things on Saturday. One is who wins, if it's a clear winner or whatever the results. Second is the actual turnout. How many people actually will turn out? 60,000 the first ballot 2011 it's pretty low it may be half that or less or a quarter of that third thing is as um, Karen pointed out the vote the actual mechanics can they pull it off smoothly there's been talk they may have a real problem getting people to get verified in the voters list that may have people calling complaining saying they didn't get the vote Uh, that could be a major problem as well Hmm. on Saturday we'll see so much to talk about on Sunday let's wrap up Q&A for there and move to good stuff from the gallery. That's our weekly segment where we suggest a piece of reading, viewing, or listening that we've enjoyed or found interesting. It often has a political connection and that we think is worth sharing. We have a reader recommendation this week. I have had a few stashed away. So this one comes from Tim Gerwing. Uh, It's paying for the golden years. This is an audio episode from CBC's The Current's Project Money, which did some really interesting reporting in the last 12 months on a whole range of financial issues. And the particular episode that Tim suggested deals with pensions and how Canadians aren't saving enough for their senior years. I thought that topic dovetailed really nicely into the Harper's article I recommended last week. And I think I heard this one when it aired, but I plan to listen to it again because pensions are something we all need to get our head around. Paula? What what did you bring for us today? Well, while standing in the very long save online for 15% off Tuesday, I picked up a copy of Mother Jones to entertain myself in the lineup. The October edition of Mother Jones is well worth picking up. Uh, but the one piece I'm going to highlight is a really interesting long read by journalist Dave Gilson. And it's a profile of Robert Dolet, who is chief counsel for the National Rifle Association. And what this article reveals is that when Dolet was 17 years old, he was arrested, charged, and convicted of murdering his girlfriend's mother and of robbing a pawn shop and uh, shooting the pawn shop owner. Uh, He was arrested, convicted, sent to jail, and his conviction was later overturned on the grounds that the police had not Mirandized him properly, though that term didn't exist at the time. It was 1963. He hadn't been read his rights, and that even though he had told police where he had hidden the gun, it was buried in a graveyard, and he'd taken them there, that uh, the search was deemed to be uh, fruit of the poisonous tree uh, and and not admissible, and so he was released. He then went on, uh, went to university, went to law school, uh, established a reputation as one of the best writers of briefs defending the Second Amendment right to bear arms. And it's an absolutely fascinating piece because it, you know, it, it begs the question, uh, is his civil libertarianism uh, an outgrowth of police misconduct in that they, they questioned him unfairly? Or is it hypocrisy or something even more interesting that somebody who was convicted of gun assaults as a young man uh, now campaigns vehemently for the right to bear arms. A really interesting and provocative read. Ooh, sounds good. I'll put, we'll put the links up on our Facebook page and on our website. 
Okay, I have a question for you, too. Did you guys know that Scotland was having a referendum on independence? Oh, don't go there. <laughs> I'm from Edinburgh. I knew all about you it. You knew? Yeah, yeah. And I guess I think I <laughs> vaguely knew, but I didn't realize how soon it was coming up. Yeah, I've spent two weeks of my summer in Montreal, and everybody in Quebec is, is following the story very closely. All right. Okay, so I was not paying as much attention as my colleagues, so I recently came across a few stories about about this referendum and how the fact... And I'm going to recommend a piece from The Guardian and a piece just... A kind of primer almost from Time magazine because I guess the polls are narrowing and people who are support ongoing unity with England are uh, growing increasingly concerned that there might actually be a vote that supports the idea of uh, Scotland being independent. So I'll recommend that this story, UK Braces for a Nailbiter in Scottish Independent Vote, which is in Time magazine. And then uh, there was a long piece in The Guardian about Scottish independence, which asks a question, how would Scotland defend itself? What happens to all those defense installations in Scotland if if they're this, if the people decide they do not long no, no longer want to be part of the uh, Greater UK? Your turn, Graham. Let's wrap up. I'll be very quick. I, I was going to bring up uh, an article in Harper's uh, magazine dealing with Israel. I'll just say, you know, instead I'll be really short. There's a TV show on I've been watching called Last Week Tonight with John Oliver on HBO Canada. I'm not saying you got to go out there and start getting HBO Canada, but if you like the Colbert Report, if you like um, the Daily Show, this is actually better. It's actually once a week they delve into, it's very funny, very, it's a comedic show, they delve into really serious issues, and I watched a bunch last night for the first time, and uh, they did one on net neutrality, explained the whole thing, hilarious. So it's very funny, but it's very biting as well when it comes to uh, making uh, social observations on the U.S. and the world. Uh, so it's called Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Awesome. Thank you so much. That brings this show to a close. Don't forget, we'll be recording a special post-PC Vote episode on Sunday to bring you up to speed on Saturday's results. Just like today's episode, you'll be able to find the bonus edition and a video excerpt from the show on edmontonjournal.com, sometimes on the homepage, always on the opinion section, Thanks to Greg Southam for doing this week's video for of the podcast. You can keep up to date on the Press Gallery's activities by liking us on Facebook. We are at Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. You also can subscribe to the Journal's audio stream on SoundCloud and on iTunes. We'll be back Sunday and a week from now in the Press Gallery. Mm-hmm.